This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. This morning, I have a very important guest to talk about a very crucial subject uh, that's impacting the United States, Canada, and the world. I've got Harry Nelson on the line. Harry, good morning. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Great to be with you and have you on the show. You wrote a very, very crucial book called The United States of Opioids, and I really want you to dive right into it to talk about you know, this crisis that we hear about in the news on a daily basis, uh, the lives that it's taking and everything else that's going on. So what prompted you to write the book and, and what have you noticed uh, thus far in the results of, of the book? So, you know, the book came out of my work as a healthcare lawyer. What I realized over time was over, over a period of about 15 to 20 years working as a healthcare lawyer, um, I started seeing a whole layers and layers of interwoven problems. It began for me uh, working with doctors who were prescribing pain medicine, uh, getting at one point in the early 2000s, getting in trouble with the state medical boards for not prescribing enough pain medicine. And then, it, and then I started seeing uh, the opposite problem of doctors being prosecuted for, uh, for overprescribing. I started dealing with uh, overdose responses, helping uh, medical practices and, and then addiction treatment centers uh, respond to uh, to these horrific waves of, of overdose uh, crisis. I, 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 as a lawyer, I started doing things I had never had idea, any idea that I would, I would have to do, things like writing up uh, the messaging to talk to the staff of an addiction treatment center and to the families and to the other residents every time, the, you know, just because of the frequency at which people were overdosing. So I, I, I began to get involved in the policy conversation and it became clear to me that there was not a, um, there just wasn't enough focus on, on, on the full scope of the problem and on the urgency for coming up with solutions. And so my goal in writing this book was to try to change the conversation. The opioid crisis is on the front, lo- on front pages of, the, of our papers and on TV uh, at least a few times a week. Uh, but what we tend to get is spectacle, is, is just this uh, circus of uh, trying to identify, you know, who the villain is, and we don't spend any time on how we can actually solve this. And so my goal was to try to empower people by by creating some new awareness of the problem, some clarity, some new language for how to talk about it and think about it, and hopefully some new resources and skills. I, I didn't set out to create it all myself, but at least to create a roadmap for what a part of the solution to the uh, crisis could look like. And that's crucial. And I agree with you. Oftentimes, the stuff that we see in the media um, is sensationalized and wanting to cast blame. And the analogy and the example you gave of, you know, physicians getting in trouble because they weren't prescribing enough, and then they get in trouble for prescribing, quote unquote, too much without really addressing, you know, you know, what's, you know, what's the commonalities here and why why is this becoming such a huge problem for people you know with with the the physical pain or emotional pain and oftentimes you know those get confused with people some people feel that they're in pain but they don't understand if it that physical pain is caused because of a true physical ailment or is it something that is driven from an emotional standpoint which 
for many of us feels exactly the same. It's still pain. That, so that is such an important point. By the way, the numbers are staggering. When you look at the, the data, 50 million Americans complained that chronic pain was a severe limitation in their life in the last six months. Um, which, so this, this is a, a, just a massive problem. Uh, 20 million of those people say that it, it, it restricted their work or life activity most day or every day. So we have a phenomenal crisis of pain in this country. And, and the point you make is a really important one. We, we've been, you know, there's been a body of research starting to grow on the mind-body connection of pain and how much America's pain problem may in fact have a, uh, a, a, a component that begins with just changing the way people think. Um, but that's a very difficult thing because from the patient side, nobody wants to hear that their pain may be in their head. So it's a very threatening uh, position to take. And from the perspective of our healthcare system, you know, our for-profit healthcare system incentivizes doctors to provide the care that provides them with a living. So, you know, one of my, one of the things that I see proven out over and over again in healthcare is if you have a, if you walk around with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And so, you know, the, we have a vast healthcare industry around spine surgeries, uh, not to pick on the, on the spine surgeons and all other kinds of pain therapies. And nobody's interested in just telling patients that it may just be a matter of, of changing how you think. The, the, most, the person who, the book that woke me up to this, by the way, was, um, which I encourage people to read, is uh, Dr. John Sarno, his book on mind-body connection. He said that the, the insight that he had was in, in looking at back pain, neck pain, stomach pain, and headaches was that uh, his book, which sold millions of copies, about, ha about half the people who, who read his book felt better just upon reading his book and learning that their pain might be connected to suppressed rage and anger. And obviously that's not everybody, uh, uh, but, but uh, um, there are plenty of people who have legitimate uh, you know, physical restrictions, but that is such a hard conversation to have. And so we as a country just don't have it. For a long time, actually last uh, dozen years or so, I was a director for a multi-site primary care clinic. And I would say 60 to 75% of the patients that present would you know complain about stress physical ailments and things like that but when you start digging into you know, what's going on it, you know they're dealing with you know problems at home you know maybe some work issues maybe they're stressed and burned out because of pace of life that they're living which wasn't driven by a physical injury like an auto accident or you know something you know maybe they've got some nerve damage from something or who knows what the case may be it was all external emotional mind type of things i'm not surprised by that book you know it's starting to heal some people because if you look at things differently and you approach life a little bit differently and make some you know different decisions and reactions on things it automatically reduces your stress level, you know, and tension in your neck, you know, your back, all of those things. If you look at things in a different way, you're not rushing to the medicine cabinet to take something to address this pain that really is um, not as severe. Although I know that, you know, for people that go through some severe pain, they may not like that, but it's not as severe as it could be if you just approach things from a different point of view. A hundred percent. A few years ago, I co-authored a book called um, From Obamacare to Trump Care. And part of the way we were trying to, we were trying to, I wrote it with a colleague. Our goal was to try to just provide a more objective picture of what, of where we were and what the 
political divide was on, on health reform. But one of the great insights that came out of it for me was that, uh, first of all, we as Americans have the most expensive, we pay the most for a healthcare system that is really mediocre on every, by every measure, not only life expectancy, but every disease state, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. And the answer, when you look at where the difference is, stress, the level of stress that Americans live with um, uh, uh, is really a big differentiator. It's part of the explanation. Some of the explanation may be in public policy decisions about focusing our system on late stage intervention rather than providing uh, uh, you know, extensive uh, public health preventive resources. But part of the answer is just simply within the stress level uh, uh, that America is experiencing. And part of the opioid crisis is just a traumatic reaction to chronic stress, in my belief. I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. I think, um, and it's funny, and I, because we live in a world now where we have pretty much instant access to anything. We can watch our favorite shows pretty much whenever and wherever we want on a device, on our television, sitting in the library or in our car, whatever. We have smartphones that can do everything from, you know, go visit a doctor or buy a home. I mean, technology has made our life so much easier, but yet life is so much more complex for people. And I, you know, like the old quote, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, I don't even think we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. I, I think we're trying to keep up with this false sense of accomplishment of something, but we don't know what that is. We don't know what we're trying to strive for. We've uh, oftentimes, I think many of us have lost our way, which when you don't know where you're going, that's automatically going to create some stress. Yeah, it's um, no, I think it's very true. It's uh, it's funny because we live in uh, a society with so much technological progress, uh, but but deep unhappiness. And ironically, you know, the more that I kept digging into uh, uh, literature, you know, that was out there just to, in the course of doing my book, the, the more it came back to really simple things, right? The drivers of human happiness are no, there's no, there's no big reveal here. The drivers of human happiness are not the things being advertised in front of us. It's basic things like connection to other people. It's a feeling a sense of purpose, feeling a sense of autonomy and participation in the events happening in your life and being of service to other people, feeling like you are good at your work or whatever else you can do uh, uh, to make a living and to, to, to support yourself and other people. Those, are, those, those four things are, are really the basic drivers of, of human happiness and the things that keep us healthy. And we have gotten away from them as a society. We're the least Connect, least connected, most isolated uh, um, generation in American history, and um, it's very much uh, a part of this problem as well. Yeah, that's why I always laugh at the phrase "social media" because we're anything but, and we we don't know who our neighbors are. Um, we have siloed ourselves not only in the workplace but even in our neighborhoods. You know, we don't know who who lives across the street from us where I grew up, you know, I, we knew everybody on the street and, you know, for some of us, you know, we would, you know, eat maybe as a kid, maybe three or four dinners by the time we get home because everyone you stop in with your friends. And we'll be back to the show in a moment, but first I want to let you know, today's show is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, Cloud HQ. With Cloud HQ, you get access to over 20,000 influencers that have been curated by brands just like yours. If you're a brand, you know how difficult it is to find 
and connect with the influencers that your audience already knows and trusts. That's why I suggest you get Cloud HQ. When you sign up today, you get access to over 20,000 influencers on Instagram. You can see loads of data about their profile and engagement rates before you reach out and you have direct access to their contact information so you can reach out to them on or off the platform. When you reach out to them on the platform, they offer automation tools so you can reach out to a bunch of those influencers at one time. This will save you a lot of time and I guarantee it'll pay for itself in the first year. For Breakfast Leadership listeners, I'm offering a special discount. Normally, an enterprise subscription would go for over $1,500 a year. My friends at CloudHQ are offering a subscription for just $499 a year. That's a savings of over $1,000. You can sign up today by using the discount code BREAKFAST and save, like I said, over $1,000 a year. CloudHQ is a wonderful option for any brands that are looking to influence their marketing and looking to get their program off the ground. So sign up today using the link in our show notes and use the code BREAKFAST and let me know what you think. Like I said, I guarantee it'll pay for itself in its first year. CloudHQ is an amazing offer and it's a good option for anybody that's interested in influencer marketing. Now back to the show. They'd feed you and they'd feed you and they'd feed you. And next thing you know, you know, then you're going to the doctor for eating too much. It's, you know, it was the danger. <laughs> Living in a, a somewhat Italian neighborhood that was, it was tasty. It smelled good. Always smelled good around five o'clock, but at the end of the day, it catches up with you for sure. But so, you know, after you're writing the book and, and you've, you know, you, you've started talking with people and things like that, you know, what has been the reaction of, of, you know, the, the healthcare industry and, you know, other entities that you've been speaking with or speaking with? You know, it's like I've gotten overwhelmingly, it's been positive reaction to the book. I've had some, the, the biggest challenges to the book that I've gotten have come from uh, people in the pain community. Um, I, I was, I got, a, I was a little surprised. One of the things that we don't think about is that the opioid crisis is really a series of different problems. And one of the problems is people who are in chronic pain, who were dependent on opioids to manage their pain, and they're now having a very hard time getting them. Their doctors are cutting, cutting them off, tapering them down. And, uh, and I got a lot of hostility for people saying, uh, you know, don't confuse me and my legitimate need for pain medicine with all of these people who are misusing it. Um, and it's been, uh, so I've had some work to do to, uh, to make it clear to people in the pain community that, um, that I, I, you know, my, my goal here is simply to improve our healthcare system. And some people do need access to these medications. But in general, the reaction has been positive. I've, I have found a couple other, one of the most heartening pieces for me has been um, a few leading researchers have said to me, I was speaking to Andrew Kolodny, who runs the uh, Opioid Research Center at Brandeis University and has been on 60 Minutes and a few times. He, he, said, to, he said to me that he shared my sense that we really need to empower people, that there are a lot of people out there who are kind of look, who are looking at this crisis with, you know, with their mouths open and shocked, but completely uh, un, unclear on what they can do or should be doing to make a difference here and what the real problem is. Because our, the problem is that our, our, our media coverage tends to simplify everything and look for an easy to understand narrative, which is a story, right at the moment, is a story of, you know, pharmaceutical company greed. And that's, that doesn't give people a lot of places to go. So the, the overwhelming reaction has been positive. And uh, for me, there have been a number of really powerful connections. It's been just seeing how deep this crisis runs in terms of how many people have lost family members and friends and have, have family members and friends struggling both with severe pain and with addiction. 
um, and you really have get a sense of, of, of the fact that we are all in this together. And I think that that's been heartening for me because I think the only way we're going to solve this is by a lot of different action on a lot of different fronts, you know, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our civic communities and religious community. So to me, I think, uh, I think that that's the first step is just getting people aware that we've got to do something. And the argument I make in the book is that, you know, we, we tend to think of intervention as a, that's a professional skill, right? There are people who, whose jobs are interventionists who intervene in, in addictions um, and prevention is something that happens in, you know, public health, uh, in, in, in public health announcements and in schools. And I think we need to really rethink, re- rethink it and think of our, all ourselves as people who can be agents of prevention and intervention, which is just a matter of learning new skills so that we can, you know, in, we can be effective uh, in the lives of the people around us in a way that's humane and non-judgmental and encourages conversation, communication, and connection to try to help people who are suffering now and, and prevent more people from being lost to this crisis. Well said, and and I love the approach because I think oftentimes, and you know, this is you know one of the challenges with healthcare is you you prescribe something as a physician, and it you know it masks the pain or addresses something, especially if it's something like a chronic disease or something like that, where if you can get to the root of what's causing the situation, or in this case, you know the the you know the really difficult pain that people are dealing with you have to go at it at several levels and approach. And it's not something that's an instantaneous fix. Um, those are just band-aids and the pain's going to come right back. And we see that with addictions and all kinds of other different things, but to approach it. And I love the way you talk about it from different entities, different, you know, from the schools, from physicians, from healthcare, from leadership, from families, friends, all of these approaches to figure out, okay, what, what are the experiences? Cause you said it earlier, you know, it touches everyone. You know, if, if 50 million people are dealing with it, I'm guessing that number might be lower than what it really is. And you look at the population and you go, okay, this is touching everyone. We can't continue down this path. So we need to figure out a way to one, help those people that you know, deal with these ailments in such a way where the people that truly need it will get it. So they have it to them because I, I can understand their concerns. You know, they don't want to be without it because that pain is, is, is horrible to deal with. But you don't want people just to take it because it's the easy way to get you know, somebody out of the room or, again, the way the healthcare system is funded. You know, you know there's, there's more money, quite frankly, and I know this upset people, there's more money in reactionary care than preventative care. Yeah, without question. By the way, one of the, the really interesting pieces of this that I didn't fully appreciate until I started doing the research leading up to the book was that we have some, we have, we've had a real ambivalence in our health policy that has really stifled critical research. So, you know, so what's really, what was one of the most interesting things is that when you look back at sort of the history of opioids in particular, we have, human beings have a 5,000 year history of using them for, to reduce pain, for sleep, for an easy death, uh, and other health purposes. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that the world and the United States began to realize the problem and began to make some of them illegal, uh, uh, particularly turning heroin from what had been a Bayer medication into a street drug um, in the early 1900s. 
And what happened was there was a severe crackdown on American physicians that basically left and put it, you know, thousands of physicians were charged and went to, went to prison for prescribing to people who had opioid addictions in the 1920s. And so we had a whole generation of physicians who basically were uh, traumatized out of prescribing for pain. And we, in those days, we thought of addiction as a moral condition. So a lot of research didn't get done, right? It's only the last 10 years that we've brought addictive disorders in fully into healthcare. And we're still arguing about the extent to which they're social, emotional, and biomedical. Um, and what, and what, so what I learned in going in, and I, got, I had the privilege of participating in very high-level policy conversations with leading, you know, with people coming up, developing policy for the branches of the, of the federal government that are dealing with this problem, is that we, we just have not gotten anywhere on really understanding and developing good protocols for doctors to treat pain. We haven't trained a, doc, a generation of doctors. Um, and so we have, a, we have a lot of work for us to do within our healthcare system. Um, and and for the one takeaway for me is that everybody who is, whether you're dealing with pain yourself or addiction or, or your family, you have to get out there and do the research yourself because the, uh, you know, the, the, the resources out there are incredibly confusing precisely because um, because we've we, we've had a, a very stifled conversation with a pendulum swing uh, back and forth, and we're we've gone from an extreme crackdown 100 years ago to an extreme to a, a, a liberal position 20 years ago to an extreme crackdown again today, and uh, people really need to do their homework um, and not just take for granted the information that they get. Yeah, I agree with you there too, because even having worked in the healthcare sector as long as I did getting information uh, is easier said than done. And we worked in the healthcare sector. So you would think we'd have access to anything and everything, but navigating those waters is difficult. And yeah, patients, if, if anybody takes anything away from our conversation today, this, I want to hammer this one home. Patients and people need to take a more proactive approach to your life and your health ask questions, do the research, uh, ask you know, people that are in similar situations, what they're doing, get more knowledgeable on whatever condition or situation you're in. So you have a, can, or you can make an educated choice and decision on uh, the treatment for you. It, it's because it's your health. You know, a physician uh, can only diagnose based on what he or she is told and from tests, results, and things like that. But there's other things that if you shared that with that clinician may change how they approach something. So take a vested interest in your healthcare. I, you know, by the way, one of the things that, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to Make sure that you know people had a, to make it a resource for anybody who's who's struggling with all of the confusing, contradictory information out there, um, both around pain, treating pain, resources for pain, and for addiction. So um, I hope that you know that's one of the the the, the best pieces of feedback I've had has been um, people uh, finding the book useful in their you know in, in dealing with their their own uh, their own health issues and. Uh, you know their family and family members' issues. So I, uh, it's, I, I think it's, it's a, there's plenty more to do, um, but it's definitely um, there's just a, there's a lot out there that is not that people won't uh, won't just uh, won't won't tell you right away because unfortunately everybody's selling something. Yep, and that's you know that's the frustration too is 
there's a method to how the healthcare system is, is currently funded. And oftentimes it's, it's funded by, you know, those that, you know, are pumping money into the system. And, and unfortunately sometimes that's the decisions that get made is based on, you know, where the revenue is coming from and not necessarily what's in the best interest for, for society as a whole. So I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Harry, where can people find out more about you and, and your book and everything else that you're doing? I appreciate it. So, um, you know, I have a website, harrynelson.com. It has an uh, opioid uh, uh, awareness, uh, a self-assessment test that people can do if they want to see how ready they are to uh, contribute to this, this battle. And, uh, you know, my book is, uh, it's, in, it's on Amazon and it's about 180 bookstores around the country. So um, uh, the title is From Obamacare to, sorry, that was the last one, uh, The United States of Opioids a prescription for liberating a nation in pain. And again, I really appreciate you having me on. Great to talk to you this morning. I appreciate you and thank you for those books. And I'll, I'll, I'll have both books in the show notes because uh, I think uh, both are crucially important. You know, not only, you know, the, the, the pain crisis and all that, but uh, the healthcare system as a whole and how it's funded and, and how to make, you know, the right choices uh, when you're choosing your healthcare. So Harry, thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Until next time, everybody, be well. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get as a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.